Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Good to feel the sunshine this week. I was walking over to my parents' house, and uh, the sun was shining, and I said, man, isn't it amazing after having such cloudy weather how it just makes you feel better to have the sunshine? It's so good. So appetite says, be satisfied. Enjoy yourself. Education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Materialism says, be happy, treat yourself. Psychology says, be confident, fulfill yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. God says, be wise, humble yourself. What this tells me is that uh, godly wisdom and that humble heart really is against everything we see in every other philosophy in the world. The wisdom of God does not align with the wisdom of the world. They're on two completely different paradigms, and and one is diametrically opposed to the other, which is why James said last week, to be a friend of the world is to be hostile towards God. Worldly wisdom looks to find value and purpose based on what we accomplished. But as a Christian, we look to what Christ accomplished, and that's where we find value and purpose. As we continue in our letter from James, I want you to see how he's trying to shift his audience from from one path to a, a new direction, from a path of selfish ambition, as he's described it, to one of humble submission. That first path, that path of pride, ultimately creates a distance in our relationship with God. The fact is, the more we trust in ourselves, the less we need Him. We've learned as James has walked through this situation in the churches that he's writing to that that pride has caused them to speak sharp words to one another. So he encourages them towards humility so that they might bridle their tongue. In the same way, he talks about how pride influences their relationships when they seek other people for selfish gain. And so he calls them to humility, to consider the needs of someone else is more important than their own. Humility is a heart of dependence. And in our passage this morning, I believe that's where James wants us to go. He wants us to understand what it means to to cultivate a heart of humility, and to see how that heart impacts the the relationships we have with those around us, how it impacts our our future plans and even our daily decisions, letting humility guide the way. So as we go to the Lord together, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, as we come to You this morning and look at Your Word, we want to do so with humble hearts. We know that humility is what is necessary to be teachable to hear your word, to be changed by your word, and to live differently because of it. So God, we come to you now as we open your word and ask that you do your work in our lives, that you speak to our hearts, that you change us in ways that draw us closer to you and allow us to demonstrate to the world around us your goodness at work in our lives for your praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 
So if you would, turn to James chapter 4, and we will begin in verse 11 where we left off last. James chapter 4, verse 11. James continues writing, and he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? This first verse is one where the original language, I think, really comes in handy. I think the English translation is a little soft, in my opinion. In verse 11, it says there, do not speak against. The Greek word there literally means to slander. So this is not just talking bad about someone. This is talking so bad about someone that you're disparaging their character. You're slandering their name. It's a prideful judgment of another person's heart. And the issue here is it's happening among brothers and sisters in Christ. Their judgment is against a fellow believer, putting them in a negative light. Measuring their life against the law, perhaps, and and highlighting all their inadequacies. And then, more importantly, sharing that opinion so that others think less of them. Now, if we stop for a minute and consider this issue, I think we would all agree it's not isolated to the early church. (laughs) In fact, if we were honest, we've probably at some level all been guilty of this. Maybe somebody's hurt you, (laughs) and you want to return the favor. You've got an axe to grind. And it really bothers you when someone thinks well of someone who's hurt you. It's more important to you for them to understand What a bad person that really is and the hurt that they've brought to your life. Or maybe it's jealousy. Maybe you look at another person's life, their perfect marriage, their perfect family, their perfect job, and that that jealousy just drives you (laughs) to highlight where they actually do fall short. In some strange way, it makes us feel better about ourselves when others think less of them. Or maybe sometimes it's actually true. Maybe they really have sacrificed their family in pursuit of a career. For some of you students, maybe there's somebody who shows up on Wednesday night and you know they're partying all weekend long. There's something not right in their life. But whether our judgment is accurate or unfair, it is always sinful to disparage another person. Whether your judgment is accurate or unfair, it is always sinful to disparage another person. Whether true or not, it is always wrong to make someone look bad in the eyes of others. That's not your job. James says if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge of it. In other words... We can't make ourselves an authority over the law without letting the law have authority over us. That same idea is behind a teaching that Jesus had in his life and ministry. I want us to look at that together. Keep your finger in James and turn over to Matthew chapter 7. It's a very familiar passage, but it ties directly to what James is teaching us in our passage this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, 
verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1. Here Jesus is teaching, and listen closely to what he says and how it ties to James. He says, do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be a measure to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, putting ourselves under the authority of the law first reveals our own sin. It reveals the ways in which we fall short, which makes it a whole lot more difficult to point our finger at other people. When we take an honest look at our heart, we can't help but notice the amazing grace that God has extended towards us. And the more we live in the understanding of God's grace towards us, the less we will be willing to condemn other people, whether the assessment is true or not. Look at how he continues in verse 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver. There is only one judge, only one who is able to save or destroy. God has the only judgment, the only judgment that is righteous and true. See, we make our judgments based on what we can observe, outward behavior, right? And then we make an assumption about what is going on in another person's heart. But even if someone has good behavior, doesn't necessarily mean their heart is right before God. Our judgments are at great risk of justifying the sinner and condemning the saint. Only the judgment of God is righteous and true. We look at outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. Not only that, it says that God is both the lawgiver and the judge. What that means is he's created the perfect standard, that standard of holiness. And then he rightly judges us against that standard. And guess what? The verdict is true for all of us, myself included. We all fall short. Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our only hope is to trust in the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our only righteousness is a righteousness that we do not possess on our own. See, Paul, the apostle, knew this well. In Philippians, he's writing about, really, his resume of success, the things that he accomplished, his credentials and, and, and success and accomplishments in life. But after having listed all those accomplishments, I want you to just listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained for me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I think I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him. Here's the key not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. God is both lawgiver and judge. And the only way we become righteous in the eyes of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He alone fulfilled the perfect law with a perfect love put on display at the cross. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, which means nobody can boast. When we are humbled in the light of His glory and grace, it's hard to stand in judgment of someone else. Especially when they're a brother and sister in Christ and they share in the very same inheritance as we do. Our goal should be to lift them up, not put them down. If they're lost in sin, then seek to restore, not to condemn. Pride puts us in a place of authority that does not belong to us. Instead of submitting to God's word, we use it as a weapon. Somehow it makes us look good by making others look bad. And as you can see, pride like that only destroys relationships. Humility. Humility is what builds unity within the body of Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business, make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James moves from the issue of pride and relationship and then talks about how it spills over into our future plans. I don't know that he's, this is necessarily true, but as I read this, it seems as if James is a little bit exasperated. He says in verse 13, come now. It's as if he's, as if he's saying, come on, guys. <laughs> you can do better than this. He earlier calls them brethren. He doesn't say that here. And I just wonder if it's because they're not acting like it. Their conduct looks like what's happening in the world around them. They say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to such and such place. We're going to do such and such a thing. We're going to make good money. We're going to be a success. But their plan is motivated by pride. They're going to use their gifts. Their passions, which they see as their best chance for success, or as some have said in our culture, your best life now. As long as I leverage my greatest strengths, then I can live in comfortable security. The only problem with that plan is this. It doesn't include God. Oh, they probably want Jesus along for the ride, right? We talked about that last week. It might be nice to have him help us pedal from time to time. But the fact of the matter is, he's not the one who's directing their life. Now, let me pause here to make sure that you understand that I'm not in any way suggesting that it's sinful to make a plan, right? If you're in college, you need a plan. You need a degree plan. You need to pursue a career. As you think about life, you think about who you want to marry, how you might want to raise your family. If you have a family as parents, you got to have a plan for living within your means. It's called a budget. It's good. You should try it. But there's an important difference between being a good steward and prideful control. 
A good steward is a wise manager of that which ultimately does not belong to them. We see this in the parable of the talents. You remember the talent parable where the landowner gives these different people different amounts of money. All but one goes and uses it to create some kind of a profit ultimately for the good of the landowner. Jesus condemns the one who doesn't use those resources, but instead buries them and keeps them for himself. Prideful control takes those same resources and uses them for selfish gain. They're focused on building their own kingdom instead of being concerned about God's kingdom. James is condemning those who follow their own plans at the expense of following God's will. That's the key, so don't miss that. James is condemning those who follow their own plans at the expense of following God's will. James is reminding us, look guys, life is too short to waste it on selfish pursuits. He says, life is like a vapor. It's here for an instant and then boom, it's gone. And trust me on this, the longer you live, the more you realize how true that absolutely is. It goes by fast. If we spend all our time engaging in business to make a profit in order to prove our life, we end up losing out on kingdom-significant purposes that God has in store for us. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all have ever made a purchase that you later regretted? Anybody? Certainly have. Multiple, in fact. If you've ever listened to those infomercials, that might be the source of one of those regrettable decisions, right? The copper pan that promises to change your life, right? The driver that's going to add 100 yards to your drive and you don't even have to swing as hard, right? Or the fishing lure that the fish absolutely cannot refuse. But then you get it, you try it, and you realize it doesn't quite transform your life as it was advertised. Wasting our life on what the world has to offer is like buying something from an infomercial. It may sound great, but it never ends up as great as it sounds. In the end, it's a regretful decision that does not work as advertised. Life is too short to waste your time on infomercial promises from the world. James is asking, why live for this long-term plan when you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring? Make your plans not with a limited view, but trusting in the one who has infinite wisdom. We learned this in Isaiah 40, didn't we? Remember when Isaiah said, the people are like grass. (laughs) And their loveliness like the flower of the field. The the grass withers, the, the flower fades. But what? The word of our God stands forever. God has an eternal perspective from beginning to end. Isn't it so much better to trust in him than it is to take control of your life? He's calling us to live for that wisdom that you see in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where it says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. 
It's this idea of trusting in the one who has ultimate control and infinite wisdom. If that's your resource, why would you depend on anything else? There's an ancient practice in an Eastern culture that uh, I don't think any longer exists, but when they would have a new emperor come in place, one of the things that they would do is have a royal mason come up, and he would present to this new king a series of slabs of marble, of which the king would then choose and the mason would then take and make his tombstone. Part of the coronation ceremony for a new king was the construction of a tombstone as a reminder of what a short time he has to make wise decisions. And I just wonder if James may not be trying to impress the same thing upon us. Look at how he continues in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is ultimately evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. James is now giving us an alternative to selfish pursuits. Instead of saying, I will, he says, ask to understand the Lord's will. As a Christian, our purpose and plan in life should be to align our life with God's will for our life. After all, we ultimately belong to Him. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen closely to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, that you are not your own. For you have been brought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God's Spirit indwells your life to accomplish His purposes. God's Spirit indwells your life to accomplish His purposes. We have been set free from sin so that we might live for Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ came to earth to fulfill a divine purpose. And we know that there was a point in his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where in his prayer he said, Lord, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. And once he completed the purpose for which he came, through his death, burial, and resurrection. He then turns to his disciples and commissions them with an eternally significant purpose, saying to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to understand that Jesus is with us because he still has work to do. His plan is to carry out his purpose in this world through our lives. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. Just like God made his appeal through Christ, he now makes an appeal through us. 
Our goal in life is to live in a way that puts the gospel on display. We want others to find their value and purpose through faith in Christ alone. Is there anything else you could possibly live for that's greater in its impact than that? Something not reserved simply for this world, but extends into eternity. You might say, well, that doesn't exactly give me a good house to live in. And I would say, well, maybe it does. It just happens to be a mansion in heaven. <laughs> it depends on where you put your priorities. My point is that we've been called to live with an eternally significant purpose. And our goal is to align our life with God's will. We, wanna, we don't want to be so firm in our plans that we can't embrace his purpose for our life. That's why he says in verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. See, boasting in and of itself is not the problem. The Bible actually tells us to boast in the Lord. We're supposed to brag on the great things that God has done. The evil boasting, the arrogant boasting, is bragging in all the great things that we have done. The reason it's evil is it because it proclaims a fulfilling life apart from God. James says, when you boast in your life and you leave God out, it is a sin. When you know who's in control and you live like he's not, it's a sin. It's a sin of omission. The sin of leaving God out instead of aligning your life to his will. Now, we live in a culture where we are very prone to this very same issue that we see happening in the early church. We live in a country with endless opportunities and, and promises of the American dream, right? Let me be clear on what that dream says. And I looked it up, so here it is. Listen closely. This is the American dream. American Dream says that every citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. It's an incredible privilege. The only problem is it doesn't include God. Very often, living the dream moves us farther and farther away from God's purpose and plan for our life. We let pride creep in just like they were doing in the early church, and it creates a distance in our relationship with God because the more we trust in ourselves, the less we ultimately need Him. The more highly we think of ourselves, the more likely we are to condemn other people. Pride is a poison to relationships. It influences the plans that we make. It will impact our daily decisions. And James is calling us to live with humility. So as I finish up, I want, I want us to just take a little bit of time to, to take what he said and try to figure out what does it look like then to, to cultivate a heart of humility in our daily lives. And I want to begin with how it might look in the relationships that we have with people. And in order to do that, I'm going to give you three questions that I want you to just reflect on. If you want to write them down, you can, or you want to think about them in this moment, you can. But here are three questions that I want you to just evaluate your heart on, okay? The first one is this. 
Have I given myself the benefit of the doubt, but refused it to a brother or sister? Have I given myself the benefit of the doubt, but refused it to a brother or sister? Second question, have I made excuses for my shortcomings, but remained intolerant of others? Have I made excuses for my shortcomings, but been intolerant of others? And then finally, have I judged others according to the letter of the law, but lived in my own life according to grace? Do I judge others according to the letter of the law, but when it comes to judging myself, I fill in the gap with grace? Each of those questions, I believe, gets to the heart of the issue that James is speaking to in our passage. Have I become an authority of the law without allowing the law to have authority over me? Trying to point out the speck in someone else's life without acknowledging the log that exists in my own. So maybe this week, you need to encourage someone you have been quick to condemn. Maybe there's a brother or sister in Christ who, whether right or wrong, has done something that's caused an offense. (laughs) And it's easy for you to feel better about yourself by putting them down. And maybe even speaking those things to other people so they realize what a really bad person that is. So this week, you might (coughs) spend the week praying for that person and ask the Lord this specifically. Ask God to help you see that person from his perspective. Help him, ask him to help you understand what it looks like to live in the light of forgiveness and grace that has been extended to you so that you might extend it to someone else. And as you think through and pray through this week, be committed on the front end that wherever the Lord leads, you're willing to go. Whether that means continuing to pray, picking up the phone, dropping by for a visit, but are in some way extending a hand of grace to someone you've been quick to condemn. The other thing that I think we should consider as we think about humility is how it influences our future plans. I thought about it this week. I came up with a new term. It's probably not a new term. I probably heard it somewhere else. It was new to me in that moment, so I'm claiming it. It's the term Christian atheist. Christian atheist. A Christian is someone who professes faith in in God, right? An atheist is someone who doesn't believe that God exists. So a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist. A Christian atheist is someone who is increasingly secure in a comfortable and successful life. Oh, they still believe in God, but if you press them, they really don't want him to get too involved (laughs) because he might mess up that comfortable life. After all, what if he calls you out (laughs) of that comfortable life of security and success? (laughs) What if he calls you out of that comfortable life of security and success and asks you to do something that you in no way feel equipped to do? What if you actually have to depend on him to do things through you that you could not possibly do apart from him? 
Melanie Park, what if that is supposed to be the normal Christian life? And I believe it is. Cultivating a heart of humility. I'm convinced is the only way to really see God at work in our daily lives. Holding our plans loosely. Giving Him permission to redirect. God does His greatest work not through our success, but through our submission. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let me close with an example from Scripture that I think is the best example of humility apart from the life of Christ. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? But when you look at the life of Moses, you know that it did not start that way. He had to learn what it meant to live with humility. His story is really remarkable because it really is a story that should have never existed. He should have been killed as an infant. But God protected him from genocide and actually placed him in the protection of the home of the man who ordered the genocide. And in that home, he grew to be a man of great influence. He had all the privileges of wealth and success. But that's not what God needed to carry out his plan through the life of Moses. Moses initially was driven by pride, which is why he used his authority to take the life of another man. Committed murder. Causing him to forfeit, forfeit his life of privilege and then to flee to the wilderness, and then to live as a shepherd, learning what it meant to live in humility. The wilderness it was the stage in which God helped Moses understand what it meant to be humble. Tending for sheep of sheep was what God ultimately used to train Moses in the understanding of what it meant to lead God's people. The pasture, not the palace was where Moses learned humility. And what is true for Moses is equally true for us. God does not need our great success and our impressive wealth to make an impact in the world. He needs our humility. A humble heart that trusts in God more than we trust in ourselves. To the point that Moses would later declare in his life, when God had taught him, and I believe at the place where someone could say he was the most humble man on the face of the earth, because he faced an important decision, not only in his life, but in the life of all of God's people. And in response to that decision, he says this, If your presence, Lord, does not go with us, do not lead us from here. Lord, if you're not in it, we're not moving, because it's not worth doing. This is what humility looks like when we use it in view of our future plans and allow it to direct our daily lives. It's finding contentment in the pasture and not the pursuit of a life in a palace. Let me close in prayer and then I want to introduce you to a new family in our church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word and we are humbled by it. It consistently reveals the ways in which we fall short. 
but thank you for drawing near to us as we draw near to you to remind us that if we humble ourselves before you, then you have a way of exalting yourself in us so that what we really ultimately long for is fulfilled, not through success, but through submission. Those infomercial promises of the world simply don't work as advertised. Your promises, however, are good and right and true, and not only impact us now, but have eternal significance, eternal value. We live with eternal purpose. So, Lord, help us not be distracted by the things of the world, but may we set our face on you so that the world, things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, we love you. And we know that you love us because you keep pursuing us. And I pray that this morning, if you have spoken to our heart, that we will be willing to follow you, to trust in you with all our heart and to not lean on our own understanding. But in all our ways, not in some of our ways, but in all our ways, acknowledge you, trusting you to make our path straight, fulfilling the purpose, the eternally significant purpose that we have through faith and trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.